My name is Dr. Ethel Tungohan. I'm a writer, a researcher, a faculty member, and an activist. This is Academic Antis. The last few weeks have been devastating. Like many of you, I've been feeling the sense of immobilization, of helplessness, as we witnessed Hamas's attack on Israel that killed 1,400 civilians and the Israeli state's bombing of Gaza that, as of the time of taping in late October 2023, have killed over 8,000 Palestinians, as reported by the Associated Press. The taking of life will likely keep rising. Academic Anti's producers and I had a long conversation about whether we should proceed as planned with the episodes that we have in store for the season. But doing so didn't feel right. As a producer and host of this podcast, I really take to heart our adage that we need to keep doing and acting otherwise, that we need to remain true to our anti-racist, feminist, and decolonial ethos by carving out a conversational space where we can address issues that never get talked about. I also want to hear the lessons of previous academic aunties, including Joyce Green and Sara Ahmed, who remind us of the importance of speaking truth to power. I must admit, even though I am a political scientist by profession, my intentions in engaging with what is happening don't stem from my research expertise. I am not an expert on militarized occupations. I am not a field expert in Southwest Asia or what's commonly described as the Middle East. Sometimes I feel like I'm only capable of engaging at the most basic level, at the level of my humanity as a mom of two kids, as the daughter of parents who lived through and protested against military dictatorship in the Philippines, as the granddaughter of grandparents who, when they were raising me, had many harrowing stories to tell of living under Japanese occupation during World War II. As opposed to the quote-unquote objective scholar that academic institutions expect us to be, All of these experiences shape my day-to-day life, but also how I am ethically oriented in my research, teaching, and activism. Those who have been killed, who will be killed, they're people like you and me, with children, with parents, with hopes and dreams for the future. We cannot turn away from their basic, fundamental humanity. So I am mourning. I'm mourning the loss of a staggering amount of thousands of civilian lives, many of them children, Palestinian and Israeli. I am mourning alongside Palestinian and Israeli families who are living through unspeakable horror. I'm mourning the loss of journalists, aid workers, healthcare workers, migrant workers, including members of the community they claim and that claim me, Filipino migrant workers working abroad. Part of the Filipino migrant workers who died who are migrant care workers, whose children they left behind in the Philippines will never see them again. I am horrified at the ways that government leaders are dehumanizing Palestinians and using the deaths of Israelis and the trauma of the Jewish diaspora to justify the decimation of entire neighborhoods in Gaza and the escalation of violence and surveillance targeting Palestinians in the West Bank, the deaths of thousands, and the entrenchment of what United Nations experts call a genocide. And here at home, I am furious at the ways that academic institutions continue to selectively decide the balance of academic freedom. In this case, cracking down on those who are expressing solidarity with Palestinians, but also on those who are just trying to understand the conditions that led to the horrific violence that we've seen this month in order to make it stop. This is what's especially egregious to me. Why are some institutions punishing those who are just trying to learn more? 
In addition, why are students and professors who voice support for Palestine, who even mention Palestine, facing sanctions? Why are those who were trying to call attention to the human rights catastrophe in Gaza, who were calling for ceasefires, for peace, for affirmations that Palestinians are human too, and for an end to Israeli occupation in Gaza, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem, calls that mainstream institutions like the United Nations amplify facing censure or worse? And why are colleagues of mine who are trying to be educators and teach their students the full history of this catastrophe, for lack of a better word, getting docs, subject to death threats, and being made to face ongoing harassment without institutional support or protection? Many government bodies are complicit in encouraging harassment. The U.S. Senate, for example, passed Republican Senator Josh Hawley's resolution that equates pro-Palestinian protests in schools with anti-Semitism, putting student protesters at greater risk of harassment. I have and continue to have so many questions about the current moment to understand the truly awful things we are seeing around us. So for the next couple of episodes, we want to explore these issues in depth. This week, I'm joined by Academic Antis producer, Dr. Anisha Nath, as we talk with Palestinian scholar and activist, Dr. Jennifer Mogram, an assistant professor of critical race and ethnic studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Jennifer talks to us about how to understand what is happening right now by understanding the larger historical context. And in our next episode, we're going to get into the issue of academic freedom specifically and talk about the current and longstanding ways in which advocacy for the rights of Palestinians is being censored in academic spaces. And now here's our conversation with Dr. Jennifer Mokadam. For this episode of Academic Antis, it is a tremendous honor to have Professor Jennifer Mogadam joining us today. Professor Mogadam is an assistant professor of critical race and ethnic studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz. But I'll also get Professor Mogadam to introduce herself. Thank you so much for having me today. As Ethel explained, I'm a professor, assistant professor at UC Santa Cruz in the Critical Race and Ethnic Studies Department. I'm also a longtime community organizer in Palestinian and Arab transnational communities. Most importantly, I guess I would say, is is formerly a founder and active member for a long time with the Palestinian Youth Movement and today with the Palestinian Feminist Collective. So Jennifer... How how are you? What has the last few weeks been like for you as a scholar, as a community activist, and also as someone with roots in Palestine? I think the last few couple weeks for me and many Palestinians have been very heavy, filled mm-hmm. with many different and mixed emotions. This bombardment feels different. It feels more severe. It feels more relentless and endless. And it's hard to see a way out of it. In terms of the scholar and activist dimension of this, I think for many Palestinian academics, myself included, it's really been all hands on deck trying to do as much as we can to support Palestine in this moment to offer more people-centered frameworks for yes. what's happening in this moment. It feels reminiscent of 9-11. Mm. There's a resurgence of discourses that are serving to really demonize 
Palestinians in ways that are dangerous and inaccurate. And the other thing that is, I think, interesting about this particular period and era is this kind of info war battle that we're in, where we mm. see just completely unfactual mm-hmm. headlines ripping across different media platforms. And it doesn't actually matter whether they retract them or not later, mm. the damage is already done. And we're seeing that happen. And so I think a lot of the effort, as scholars especially, is to sort of offer alternative perspectives of knowledge and to challenge some of these racialized tropes that decenter power asymmetries. And on the activist front, really trying to show up for our people back home and making sure they know we stand with them, we're doing what we can to end what many people are calling another Nekba or catastrophe for Palestinians, especially in Gaza, but all over. If I may, why do you think it's important to have a people-centric viewpoint when understanding what's happening? Like, why is that an important intervention? As Palestinians, we've been used to this for a very long time, where the coverage of our struggle has been very antagonistic for decades. And it really hasn't, until the recent period, reflected any kind of a lived daily reality for Palestinians, both inside the different territories of Palestine, and I'm talking about all of historic Palestine, as well as those in the neighboring countries and refugee camps. There's just such a lack of information and context about Palestinians. And so what we end up getting is a colonial and imperialist narrative that serves U.S. foreign policy interests and Canadian, for sure. There's an interesting historical relationship in Canada with Zionism that I'm sure you all know better than me. But what we're getting is this discourse in order to manufacture popular consent Mm. across North American or U.S. and Canada populations in order to serve foreign policy interests without any kind of questioning. So I think it's really important to center I mean, as a scholar of social movements and of the third world, of course, I believe in centering those who are the most oppressed and disenfranchised and to see their struggles as a struggle for dignity and humanity and not through this racialized lens and narrative that we are constantly bombarded with. Jennifer, you also shared with us how much labor you're undertaking or Palestinians are undertaking in this moment, but also that that is not just in this moment. This far exceeds the month of October, right? Mm. Decades and decades of work. Um, so I'm I'm just curious if you can speak a little bit to the impact of what it means to be doing this work of mobilizing here, um, thinking of family in Palestine, community in Palestine, and what that toll is on mm. Palestinian students. I think 
students in particular, but also faculty members are really struggling to just show up as if nothing's going on right now. Yeah. Especially our students who are like in STEM programs mm. and, and fields that aren't as lenient or accommodating of these types of moments. They're really struggling with having to go to their labs, take exams, participate in school just like any other student in this moment while anxiety is at an all-time high people are constantly on their phones looking for updates talking to their family members just very distracted because all that we can think about right now is what's happening which i think may be sounds unhealthy but it's also not really something that we can avoid in this moment when so much feels like it's at stake. And so some of the work I think is trying to support students, trying to push other maybe less supportive departments to adopt different kinds of policies of lenience for their students. I think it's been hard for faculty too. I'm not teaching this term, but I know a lot of people who are and you know, some of us are like, let other people guest lecture for you. Try to be graceful to yourself as well, because people are worried about showing up for their students and also just not completely able to get it together in this moment, do the reading, prepare the <laughs> notes, and these kind of things, because we're just immersed constantly. Um in the news and then what's happening. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I've noticed too, and this is something my students have shared with me, students with family in Palestine, Muslim students, one of the things that's been adding to their trauma is how universities, institutions, workplaces were quick to decry what happened in October 7, right? But then there was a palpable silence when it yeah. comes to what's happening in Gaza, now the West Bank and in Palestine. And it's almost like, you know, the silence of these institutions that were quick and eager to put out press releases and statements in the wake of October 7, that, that's not being done in recognition of what they're going through as well. So that's also been a source of trauma. It's like, you know, why is this not being mentioned too, right? And I don't know if this is something you've noticed as well. 100%. I think that the universities are actually creating a really hostile environment for Palestinian Arab students and anyone who's, or and Muslim students and anyone who's read in that way. And like the all almost all of the UCs. So I also actually work with the UC Ethnic Studies Council, which is the UC system wide grouping of all the ethnic studies faculty in the UC. And we put out a statement last week or the week before, um, I think early last week. But speaking back to this, because the the university is just taking up this sort of blanket accepted discourse around 
quote-unquote Hamas terrorism or terror attacks on Israel and reinforcing this language and prioritizing the safety of Zionist students over students that can be racialized as Palestinian in this moment has actually made them responsible for a lot of the hostile actions that have been taking place across the UC campuses and across, I mean, all of the universities are doing the same thing. We saw the backlash at Harvard. We have a lot of different controversies happening right now. And a lot of students are getting assaulted. They're getting physically assaulted. They're getting verbally assaulted. And the university is not doing anything to support these students. They probably don't even know that this is happening, you know, and there's just a lot of contradiction in how they are dealing with students through the facilitation of this narrative that really serves to dehumanize Palestinian mm -hmm. and normalize state forms of terrorism, state mm -hmm. militarisms that terrorize our communities. For listeners who are not familiar with the histories of Palestinians, Israel, can you trace a little bit of a longer history for those listeners that are really trying to grapple with understanding what is going on, especially as, you know, not just a humanitarian crisis unfolding, but, um, you know, genocide? Yeah, thank you for using that word. I think it's rightfully being raised in this moment more than it ever has in the past. And I think we should continue to reinforce that language because that's what's happening. Gaza is collapsing. It's been collapsing. People have known this for a long time, that Gaza is unlivable. It's been under siege and blockade for almost 17 years now. And so that what that looks like is that 97% of Gaza's water is undrinkable. About 56% of Palestinians in Gaza suffer from poverty. 75% of the population is food insecure. And the youth unemployment rate is 63%. The population of Gaza is 2.3 million. And about half of those are children, so folks under the age of 18. And so we have a very young population, a very unemployed population. Prior to this current moment, the Zionist government was already limiting electricity, for example, to about four hours a day. And everything, because of the sieges by land, air, and sea, Everything that comes in is basically under Israeli control. Mm. And so there's no way really to ensure more food, more medical supplies, more home rebuilding. And so we've already had, I think, children at the age of 16 right now are living through their sixth war. There have, through all of those wars, there haven't been sufficient efforts to rebuild the homes that were lost. And so we already have a lot of homeless and displaced people in Gaza. Um, and so this is like 
the unlivable situation that is the Gaza Strip. When we historicize the question of Palestine, though, a little more, and some of the our community members are now using the term that this is a, a second Nakba or another Nakba, mm -hmm. a new Nakba, and I just want to situate that really quickly. So the Nakba refers, it's the Arabic term for catastrophe. It refers to the historical event of Palestinian expulsion from their homeland that occurred 75 years ago, over 75 years ago, and continues through settler colonial expansion, racialized militarism, and violence ever since. And so in 1948, Zionist militias destroyed more than 500 villages. They expelled about 750,000 Palestinians from their homes, which is about 80% of the indigenous population at the time, and killed over 15,000 Palestinians in a series of massacres and atrocities. Some of those villages, those 500, many of them don't exist anymore. Others are repopulated with Zionist communities that have just built right on top of old homes and things like that, um, created different kinds of community structures like the kibbutz. There's an artist colony on an old destroyed village and you can see the remnants of that village is called the Ein Hod, and it's part of their like artistic inspiration. And so it this ethnic cleansing, this sort of moment of Nakba, we register as an ongoing Nakba. And for those who are familiar with indigenous scholarship and settler colonialism studies, we refer to the Nakba as an ongoing Nakba, what you would say is a structure, not an event. So mm -hmm. while the Nakba is marked at May 15th, 1948, the day that the Israeli state declared itself, that is the moment in which the settler state's infrastructure was crystallized, but it continues to develop itself. And that looks like so many different things. A continued land annexation, militarization of all of the Palestinian parts, lack of mobility, cutting people off from their farmlands, from their families, from their livelihoods. And Palestinians have resisted this colonization the entire time and in a, many different ways. Regardless of the type of resistance, whether it's boycotts, pickets, strikes, protests, cultural production, appeals to the international community, all of those modes have actually been met with Zionist backlash, mm. with the delegitimization of Palestinian struggles for freedom and for self-determination. We hear, especially these days, <laughs> right now, <laughs> but we hear this all the time, like, where's your Palestinian Gandhi, right? <laughs> Which is a total misread of Gandhi, first and foremost. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, where's your Palestinian Mandela? Where are your peaceful figures, your nonviolent figures, right? And for Palestinians... All of those approaches 
have been and continue to be tried. Um, and lastly, I'll just note that under international law, an occupied people have the right to resist in any mode that they choose. And so if people are interested in a legal perspective, we can critique the flaws of international law, the United Nations, and these bodies that uphold the imperialist status quo. But in legal terms, Palestinians have the right to defend themselves any way they choose. And also interestingly is that every attempt that has been made through the UN Security Council to reinforce some of these international law rights for Palestinians, the U.S. has exercised their veto power. Mm. So it's very clear that the United States regional project, its collusion with the Zionist government and support for by the tune of like $3.8 billion, and now they're talking right now in this moment about giving another $10 billion right now, and all of the media discourse that we're seeing, all of this is working towards feeding into settler colonies supporting each other in their mission to colonize the world, to ensure their power across our region, and and to, you know, disenfranchise colonized subjects. And so we have to, I think, situate that. This is our struggle. You know, Palestinians were colonized through the settler form later than I think every other place. And so we're younger, like in terms of our settler colonial sort of status and struggle, but that we have to situate it within those terms. And so this conversation around an unprovoked attack is absolutely abhorrent mischaracterization of what what is actually happening. People are resisting because their conditions are just becoming unlivable. Jennifer, what you did there was so important, especially around bringing light to the various forms of resistance that Palestinians and those in solidarity with Palestinians have been enacting in multiplicity. And then there is always that clampdown afterwards, no matter what that modality of resistance is. I'm wondering if you can speak a bit to the kinds of media coverage we see of Palestinians, which has, you know, been, been described in a lot of ways. So I'm wondering if you can speak a bit to some of the patterns that you see in terms of how Palestinians are dehumanized in that coverage. Yeah, I think I've been trying to avoid <laughs> the mainstream coverage mm. because it's so devastating. Mm. But I think we have to look at this through the lens of dehumanization, through understanding the media's propaganda of selective humanity, how there's really stark differences between these categories of human and non-human, how Palestinians have really been 
sort of dehumanized, I mean, called by the Israeli defense minister human animals, which is reminiscent of other moments in history, right, in order to enact this violence. And so the media is reinforcing it, celebrities are reinforcing this discourse, and we're seeing it from a lot of different angles. And we're getting censored. So what's becoming truth is this coverage even though there are attempts to contest that because now the censorship machine is also just in full force. So Palestinians are getting shadow banned, deplatformed, and, and people in, in solidarity with Palestine and Palestinian struggle. And so what we're seeing is a standardization of Orientalist anti- Palestinianism, which has implications for the longer sort of history of anti-Arab and anti-Muslim racism, how those kind of all overlap and don't actually ever need historical accuracy in order to invoke them. And so there's this merging of all these racialized sentiments and xenophobic sentiments within the media through the question of Palestine right now. There's the sort of trying to parallel Hamas with ISIS, which is very, you know, historically and factually incorrect. Um, Hamas is a political party, whether Western governments choose to put it on the terrorist list or not is a different question, but it's a political party that has popular support among many Palestinians. And it has jurisdiction over the, it has the largest sort of administrative jurisdiction over Gaza. But you don't hear this kind of groundedness and reality in the news. What we hear is very patriarchal stereotyping, the resurgence of the violent Arab man, mm. the subjugated Arab woman. There's remnants of this old, the the 9-11 and predating, but like this terrorism trajectory where Palestinians have just been so dehumanized and it's being used as like a and racialized. So it's reinforcing all of these notions and it's impacting people here. Mm -hmm. Like the six-year-old boy that was killed by his landlord in Illinois mm -hmm. and the mother being in critical condition. These tropes have... They're also just making claims unverified, similar to what we saw like in 2001 and post-2001 with the weapons of mass destruction and the axis of evil and all of these things in order to justify the violence and brutality that is being imposed on Palestinian Arab Muslim bodies, right? And lands. And so that's what we're seeing today in the news. I think we'll see how it unfolds in the future. I think there's some differences between now and 9-11. And I just hope that everyone can try to ensure their safety because 
people are being attacked. And so we are going to see, I think, an uptick in anti-Arab racism and violence in the United States for sure, and possibly, probably Canada as well. The EU is also a mess of its own in terms of this propaganda and the policies that they're instituting, they're actually worse. Some of the countries completely banning Palestine protests and things like that. I mean, I think what's awful is the deplatforming of Palestinian academics, you know, theorists, activists. And you see that in the media. I've certainly seen it uh, reported, not by mainstream sources, but by people themselves who've been asked to be interviewed by, say, outlets like the CBC, but then they find out later that their interview's not being aired because they just, I don't know, the upper echelons, like, we can't air that, right? So I, I see that. Mm-hmm. But what we're witnessing is a deplatforming of Palestinian academics and also students, right, who dare speak mm-hmm. the P name, who dare voice out their support for Palestine, And we kind of touched on this further, but I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about it further because it's proximate to me, right? Like I'm seeing it in real time unfold in Canadian universities. So Jennifer, universities are supposed to be spaces for critical thought. Universities are supposed to be spaces where we can have a free exchange of ideas. But why is academic freedom being selectively applied here? And what advice can you give students and faculty members who are talking about Palestine but are facing reprisal? So I think one of the sort of dangerous discursive tropes that have been happening for a long time in academia, and they've been it's been growing more immensely in terms of the repression in probably the last 15 years, at least growing more widespread, is this equation of anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism about this equation that all Jewish people are Zionists, which is very offensive to the growing Jewish population that is becoming anti-Zionist. And I think the, this conceptually has been really infiltrating the university space Mm. and it served as a mechanism for silencing people we have platforms like canary mission that just create a blacklist they put people's information all over the internet you know students and faculty are getting doxxed They're getting threats as a result of that. People know where they are, where they live, for things that they've said that actually are not what they're (laughs) accused (laughs) of being, right? But because of this equation of anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, we're really seeing an uptick in this kind of backlash and the wielding of anti-Semitism all over the place in order to push people into self-censoring and silencing these kind of tactics of backlash being used to direct our attention away from other things that we're doing. So we're being diverted from the educational work, from the organizing work, from student activism and these kinds of things 
because we're having to do these lawsuits and defend and public request acts have been used heavily in recent years, right? And I think this is going to continue to grow. I think right now people's jobs are on the line. There are some people who are being threatened of getting fired because of tweets. I mean, we saw that with Steven Soleda, but it's, mm -hmm. it's happening in this particular moment as well. Things that have been said outside of university space. And this is sort of exceptionalized, right? You know, if we have faculty members, whoever they are, who critique the United States government or white supremacy or the police or these kinds of things, you don't see the same kinds of repercussions yeah, yeah. as you do with Palestine. And so it's not that we think Palestinians or that I think Palestine or Palestinians are exceptional. It's that the Zionism that is creating this noise and creating this environment where it's so difficult to be anti-Zionist is what's creating the exception. So it's cyclical. It feeds itself in that way. And then it isolates Palestinians. I think something, Nisha, you were trying to speak to, right? It isolates people speaking about Palestine or doing the Palestine work from participating within the broader intellectual community and questions. If I may, have you felt that? Have you felt isolated? You know, I have experienced it through the years, and there's all these different subtleties for it. So some people feel like it's just like these very overt or right-wing attacks, you know, but actually some of the less right-wing, the more liberal Zionist mm. forms of silencing are actually more insidious and more detrimental because they try to do this work of aligning themselves with progressive questions and issues. And we're seeing this in ethnic studies in California, for example, right now with the K through 12 battle, but positioning themselves with all these other progressive communities in opposition to Palestine. And then again, trying to exceptionalize Palestine, both from the progressive front, as well as from the right wing front. And so they're kind of actually working together to serve the same purpose and so you see the subtle way, I mean, I have seen the subtle ways also in which Zionism impacts your career, it impacts the things that you're able to do or say or interact with and things like that. And there is an initiative that I was a part of that garnered a lot of backlash it is called the Institute for the Critical Study of Zionism. Mm. It's a new institute that is trying to expand the ways in which Zionism is taken up and to situate it within a context of power in relation to that question, the question of Zionism, and to combat this IHRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism, which 
is anti-Zionism. They mm-hmm. say in this definition that anti-Zionism is a form of anti-Semitism. And this has been pushed for several years now on different campuses and stuff and in governments so that different policymakers adopt this narrative of anti-Semitism. And so this institute will be very useful in terms of serving to combat this, to historicize both anti-Zionism, Zionism, and anti-Semitism. And it got a lot of backlash. Mm from the whole political spectrum. And so I think one thing I will say is that we need to be careful also in our language in assuming that these attacks are exclusively right-wing. They're not. Well, I know Ethel will close us off, but I I just want to say thank you. We know how much we as non-Palestinians have been kind of like immersed in this and mobilizing, but the weight is different, right, for people who are Palestinian. And so we're just cognizant of of what it means to, to engage in this conversation. So really, really grateful for your time today. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thanks a lot for having me. I really hope that you, our dear Academic Antis listeners, take to heart what we're trying to accomplish here. That we are intentionally centering Palestinian academic voices because mainstream media outlets and academic spaces, even the critical ones, tend to silence them at best or bully and harass and intimidate them into silence at worst. No matter what Palestinians do, no matter what activism they engage in, whether they're activists by marching or hosting film screenings, popular discourses will still always construct them as terrorists, as threats to security. I also hope that listeners know that in talking about academic freedom, we want to keep imagining what another university, a decolonial, socially just university, could look like. For those of you who would like to learn more about ways to support faculty members and students who have faced reprisal for speaking about Palestine, please check out our show notes, which include letters and petitions. That's Academic Antis for this week. Tune in next time as we continue our conversation, this time with a focus on academic freedom. Thank you for listening. And remember, take care, be kind to yourself, and don't be an asshole.